0: This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: And welcome. You found Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz, at Lawyer Liz on Twitter. And while I am an attorney with the Atlanta office of Hall Booth Smith, Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz is not legal advice. Instead, it's a weekly look and discussion of driverless cars, drones, and all of the Internet of Things technology buzz in between. So welcome. And you are listening to us on America's Web Radio each Wednesday from 2 to 3, and catch the podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, you name it, you can find us. So, last week we spoke a little bit about the Samsung Note 7. And for those who have exploding phones, well, good news Samsung has indicated they will have 500,000 replacement phones available. Today's date is September 21st. They will be available September 22nd. I don't know if I'm holding my breath, but supposedly the fix is coming. And in media buzz, so to speak, that's going to be the focus of our show today. We've got experts in security and policy issues talking about, well, What I'd like to say was a box office smash this weekend, but instead it was a bit of a disappointing uh, bomb in that I believe only 8 million, I don't know if it was a worldwide release, but not exactly as much as they were hoping for. Poor Mr. Edward Snowden and using poor very loosely, but we're going to take a look at some of the security and policy issues behind the media darling and his case. And we've invited back frequent guest uh, Tom Cross. And Tom is going to play the very unique role of Both prosecutor and defender of some of the key points that have been raised in Edward Snowden's case. So, cross will be crossing cross. Not sure how that, if I'm going to be able to say that one five times fast, but we're going to jump from Snowden to the latest in the driverless cars because we didn't know we were quite so. Timely in the discussions uh, last week and before on driverless cars because Uber rolled out their test pilot program in Pittsburgh. And within less than a week, you have the Department of Transportation releasing and the White House releasing their policies on autonomous cars. So with all of that buzz, we've invited Josh Corman, and a legal expert tony roll to talk about some of the well take apart the policies a little bit from a security and federal versus state standpoint but then look at the legal liability the risk management who gets the ticket when there is a crash and a driverless car so busy show excited for it of course and with that gonna welcome to tom and so glad you could take the time to come back and join us on the show
2: that's great to uh great to be here
1: and tom as much as i'm having fun with your last name on the direct and cross of this topic <laughs> it's one you've certainly contributed to the discussion and dialogue online uh, what piqued your interest particularly about this case
2: um, well, so let, let's explain what case we're talking about because um, there's a whole lot of different things that Edward Snowden disclosed. Um, but I think the, probably the most interesting thing that he disclosed is uh, what's called the Section 215 metadata program. So that's a program where um, the NSA was collecting call records from uh, basically everybody's uh, phone f- phones and storing so them our, in the devices data. Sh- th- our devices
1: <laughs> were our uh, devices were listening and ratting us out. And getting in to and collecting our information, so the government was listening in. Hopefully, I wasn't that well. Let me exciting.
2: let me be clear. I want to. It's very important. Actually, the government was not listening in. At least, not in this program. Uh, they were just collecting the metadata, so the addressing of who you called or who you received calls from, but not the content. They weren't listening to the calls themselves. They were just collecting the the, the phone numbers.
1: So they knew that I was ordering Chinese takeout uh, multiple times a week, but they were not able to judge me for the amount of food I ordered each time, that's is what right. you're saying. That's right. Well, whew, that's a good thing to know. Now, with the Section 215, so what, what happened? He released these documents and different reports of different amounts of information on the programs, where there was 1.5 million documents, but... The government wasn't too happy.
2: Well no no of course not. Um but um uh with with this program in particular so he released a, a decision by the Secret FISA court. The FISA court is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court and they're there to adjudicate intelligence issues that we don't want to have an open hearing in an open court about. Um and he released a, a ruling that they uh or an order I guess a court order that they had they had issued uh, ordering a phone company to provide all of their phone records to uh to the NSA for analysis. So um, uh, that uh, you know sparked a debate because um, uh, you, you know outside of certain circles in the government, people did not understand that a program like that existed um, or that it had that scope and so um, that resulted in a whole bunch of lawsuits getting filed um, by a bunch of different plaintiffs uh, who were complaining that either uh, this program violated the law or that it violated their constitutional rights
1: so these were individual plaintiffs suing the government that's right. And what about the government's case against uh, Edward Snowden? Uh,
2: So, well, we haven't seen it uh, because Edward Snowden is uh, in Russia um, and uh, hasn't come to the United States to face trial. So there is a case that has, uh, my understanding, has been prepared against him for disclosing this information illegally. um, But none of the, of course, the details of that case would not be revealed until uh, they actually got an opportunity to prosecute him in a court.
1: And for those who are interested in following legal readings and are intimidated, thinking, oh, it's going to be this hundreds of pages of legal doctrine, the only thing that's been released is one page, the cover page that lists three charges, and that's it. So if you like to read the Cliff Notes, it is available. You can find it various sources online, but it lists three different charges. So what what on the other cases really what's going on with those? what are the five key arguments that the individual plaintiffs have raised against the government
2: um so um well there's 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 sort of uh, um yeah like I, I think there are five key um legal controversies about this Section 215 surveillance program and, uh, you know, that's what I, I uh, thought we should talk through. I think it's an interesting discussion uh, because there's a lot of questions about whether or not what was going on was legal. Um, uh, so the, the um, I mean, we can start going through them if you want. The, the,
1: Absolutely.
2: So I, I guess um, it's important to explain that, and you know this because you're a lawyer, um, there's all these procedural questions that you have to get into when you have a lawsuit before you actually get into the meat of the actual lawsuit itself, um, uh, such as, are you allowed to file this lawsuit? Um, is this lawsuit filed in the right jurisdiction? Et cetera, et cetera. And so the first two legal disputes about this this um, this program involve procedural questions. And the first question is, do the plaintiffs have standing to sue? And so I know you know, uh, as a lawyer, standing um, uh, is this, the, generally the idea is that you can't go into a court and sue if you haven't personally been harmed in some way. Um, You can't sue somebody because they're doing something you don't like if it had no effect on you. You have to demonstrate that it had some effect on you in order to give you standing to challenge it in court. And so that's the first uh, question.
1: Well, how do you show harm for a super secret program that was collecting the call logs, the metadata of what you were doing? I mean, when you don't even know necessarily what was collected released acted on
2: right that's an excellent question and that so let me present the the government's argument so put um,
1: on your government hat
2: my government hat is that is that um you know first of all the plaintiffs can't prove that their data was in fact collected by the government they don't know that for sure and and secondly that even if it was collected they can't prove that anyone ever looked at it and if no one looked at it then who cares that's the government's well, argument.
1: Sure. Now put on your tinfoil hat and <laughs> yeah, take right. off your government hat okay. and wearing the tinfoil hat. Okay. Now what?
2: All right. So the, the counter argument is um, the, the court order that was released shows the government collecting everyone's phone records. And so if they're collecting everyone's phone records, then they're necessarily collecting mine. Um, so I know
1: I made a call during that period. Right. It, yeah, they collected I, I'm a it.
2: customer of that phone company. Exactly. Um, and... Secondly, uh, that um, if um, uh, – and and I can argue or I can make arguments that the mere collection of the data is harmful to me without having to talk about whether or not anyone looked at it.
1: Okay, so now we – let's say judge rules – okay, procedurally on standing, you may proceed. Now, what do you have to show from this point of view to be able to be the one – to sue over it.
2: Right. So... The second legal question is whether or not the plaintiffs have a right to sue over the legality of that program. And I think, I guess I should explain briefly that there's a difference between something. So a thing can be legal, but not constitutional. And it can be constitutional, but not legal. So for example, if Congress passes a law that authorizes the government to do something and that law is unconstitutional, but the government uh, does something in compliance with it, then the, what the government's doing is legal. It doesn't violate the law. Uh, but it may be unconstitutional because the Constitution doesn't authorize Congress to pass that law in the first place. So it can be legal but not constitutional. On the other hand, something could be constitutional but illegal. So the government or, or it's Congress passes all kinds of laws that regulate the government. Um, and they say what the government can and can't do. If the government does something that violates an act of Congress, that's illegal. But it might, might not violate the Constitution. So something could be, excuse me, it could be illegal but not unconstitutional. So, so those are separate questions that we have to break out in order to have this this discussion <laughs> and I, uh, so the second the second question of the five is this question of whether or not the plaintiffs are able to sue um, the the government 's argument is that that nobody ever uh, nobody in the government knew that people would that normal people would know about this program. And so when Congress passed this law that they they claim authorizes it, they created a provision for the phone company to sue if the phone company felt that the program was not being operated properly.
1: So when the government passed the Patriot Act in response to 9-11, and this program, this Section 215 metadata program was included as part of that, Really, that's where it's going to break down, and we're going to jump to a quick commercial break, and then ask you to put Tom to put on his both government hat and his tinfoil hat. But you're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio.
0: This is Doctor George from Peach Street ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree e Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts.
1: Lawyer Liz, join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2.
3: With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com.
0: This is America's the best
1: in chat radio designed just for you. And welcome back. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. And we are chatting with Tom Cross on really all the buzz about Edward Snowden and gonna go through a couple of breaking down the procedural issues of what the government's doing and whether in this case, the government has passed uh, Section 215 of the Patriot Act that collects meta- metadata and just because it's legal doesn't mean it's constitutional and just because it's constitutional doesn't mean it's legal. So before everyone is suing the government, they've got to clear this hurdle. So Tom, fill us in, Put on your government hat and tell us how they think uh, this can't clear the hurdle.
2: Right. So the government's argument is that only the phone company is allowed to challenge this program. And uh, um, that, that argument is actually really important to them in this case. Um, they, they tried to convince the courts um, not to rule on the legality of the program and to only rule on the constitutionality of the program um, because they didn't think that the plaintiffs had the right to raise the legal questions.
1: So they want to split the baby, so to speak, yeah. have have a debate over half of the baby now because they think that can shut it down. Well, put on your tinfoil hat and tell us from the non-government, the plaintiff's side. Well, the
2: plaintiff's argument is that they have the right to challenge the legality of this program unless it's, it's they're explicitly prohibited from doing so. Um, but uh, um, and I, I and, uh, at least the Second Circuit Court of Appeals bought into their side of that. That. That question, but uh, I think the the government was really um, uh, focused on this part of the argument. They really uh, believed that only the phone company could challenge this, um, and uh, in particular because they they um, uh, they. So let me step back. There's this uh, principle of uh, of uh, judicial restraint, where as a judge you want to rule in the most narrow way possible. You don't want to have these like far ranging rulings. Um, and or at least if you're a good judge. And so um, judges don't like to rule on constitutional issues. They like to rule on legal issues instead uh, because that means that their ruling has a narrow consequence. And so the government asking a judge to rule on a constitutional issue and to ignore the legal issue is um, very unusual. They're asking the judge to, to, to do something that judges don't like to do.
1: So where are the cases now?
2: Oh, um, well, uh, so... Um, this this particular case that we're talking through um is uh um it reached the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh um and uh uh at that point um th- Congress passed what's called the USA Freedom Act that restructured these programs um, and in a way that sort of mooted these cases uh, so that the cases wouldn't proceed any further. Um, there are Well, that's some of,
1: one way to punt the football. Yeah.
2: There are some of these cases that are still out there. Um, so there's one case in California in particular that has been looking for a court date since 2013 and still doesn't have one.
1: That's a um, very crowded calendar. Yeah. I mean, three years to find an opening.
2: <laughs> so I don't know what the story is there. So some of these still exist and might they're like zombie court cases that might come back from the dead and like affect this situation in the future but I, I, at the same point time a lot of people think the issue is is the matter is closed because Congress passed the USA Freedom Act, which essentially uh, uh, shut the program down but I, I think the legal questions are still really interesting um, as it pertains to uh, you, you know the, the topic of what Edward Snowden did and the topic of what what was going on during this period of time that this program was operating.
1: Well, and, Tom, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on these. We're going to certainly pick them back up. But real quick, the movie. Did uh-huh. you see it? No, I haven't seen it. Okay. <laughs> well, then that doesn't help. But the government taking a while to figure out how to regulate or address. I mean, in this case, it took the government a couple of years once these programs came to light to address it, at least from the government, not the legal court case standpoint But it's reminiscent of where we've known some of Uh, these technology issues exist.
2: You're you're saying, like, it took took Congress a while to pass the USA Freedom Act. Uh, To
1: figure out that there was a problem with what they were doing that needed being addressing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the court cases affected that. Um, I think that that there were people in Congress who felt that the government would prevail at trial. And when it began to look like that was less likely, I think that that is is something that prompted Congress to take action.
1: Well, and when we're talking... Talking about prompts, I think that's a good segue into uh, Josh Corman and his thoughts on something that uh, another technology aspect that we've been dealing with is all of these new technologies, emerging technologies, and how do you keep them safe? And how do you integrate them into the, the realm of everyday use? So, Tom, thank you for joining us. And, Josh, we owe you congratulations first on your role with uh, the Atlantic Council. So, first, welcome to the show. And so yesterday was a relatively big day for transportation. And Autonomous Vehicles, the Department of Transportation, releasing uh, their proposed rules for autonomous vehicles all right, 100 pages long. What, do you, what are your first thoughts?
4: So I still need to digest quite a bit. They refer to it as HAV or highly autonomous vehicles. Um, many of us in the cybersecurity realm have been waiting with bated breath to see their, their guidance and their rulemaking and regulatory posture for the cybersecurity vehicles writ large and this um, probably will disappoint people, um, and it's more of a sequencing issue. They've actually finished their guidance on cybersecurity, uh, but it has not been released yet, so this kind of came out cart before the horse a little bit. So while it applies, the master document mostly applies to them being very bullish on the adoption of highly autonomous vehicles, um, there, and there are mentions of privacy and safety and security principles. Uh, there are going to be 15 guiding principles Um, I at least got a a call with them yesterday to understand at least some of the philosophy and approach. Uh, But I think I'm going to reserve judgment until I see the the actual guidance, which they claim is coming, quote-unquote, soon.
1: Well, and the timing couldn't have been somewhat better or from a humorous standpoint, in the sense of yesterday the uh, research team of white hackers or white hat hackers from China demonstrated another vulnerability and remote access issue with Teslas and right. Tesla says they've released a software patch overnight that should automatically roll out and address some of these issues but to me that serves to highlight kind of the concerns that all right they're coming to the roadways, but they're, how do you keep them secure from a software standpoint?
4: Right. So uh, the three years ago on August 1st, um, I know you know this, but uh, we started org in recognition that the cavalry isn't coming to save us on issues affecting public safety and human life and the Internet of Things. So we've been... Um, a volunteer group of uh, voice of reason, translators, ambassadors, to try to talk to the public, public policymakers, in, in these safety-critical industries like automotive and connected medical devices, uh, industrial IoT, consumer IoT, but anything where bits and bytes speak flesh and blood. So on our first birthday two years ago, uh, we published a five-star automotive cyber safety framework and essentially said to the stakeholders of the automotive ecosystem, including and especially the regulators like NHTSA, or NHTSA Uh, for people that don't know that pronunciation. um,
1: Oh, the acronyms.
4: the, the, The acronyms. So basically what we said is, look, the automotive industry is masters of their domain and have been working on improving vehicle safety over the last 100 years. We're masters of our domain in cybersecurity, and now that our domains have collided with computers on wheels, we will be safer sooner if we work together. And what we've been trying to do is work with regulators within a framework that assumes that once you add software and connectivity, that all systems fail, and that the issue is about being prepared for failure across five dimensions. And we we're really hoping to stimulate conversation with the automakers, the tier one suppliers, the dealers, the consumers, the regulators, etc. And the cliff notes to that is um, if all systems fail, uh, they have fancier names in this, but here's a, a memorable little uh, quintet, but how do you av- tell your customers how you avoid failure? Uh, tell researchers you'll take help avoiding failure without suing them, uh, t- how do you capture study and learn from failure with evidence capture, how do you uh, have a prompt and agile response to failure with secure updates, and how do you contain and isolate failure or separate critical systems like breaking from non-critical systems like stereos and infotainment. And we were well, I raise a point of.
1: I raise a point of personal privilege with the radio. I think being a critical feature, because <laughs> if I cannot sing in traffic, I will go nuts. <laughs> but I understand yeah. your distinctions.
4: Yeah, so it, it's really a framework, and you know, the hacker community and the tech community is loath to see regulation of technology that moves very quickly but I also have cognitive dissonance because um, we don't have voluntary standards for kitchen safety codes in restaurants. We don't have voluntary standards for commercial airlines. We don't have voluntary seatbelt laws. In safety-critical industries, there's an expectation of the taxpayers that there's a minimum safety standard of required things. So instead of us trying to make a brittle PCI checklist, we advocated for more um, attestation-based model that can be a little more evergreen, and we were hopeful that NHTSA would... Do that. It feels though like Nitsa is still reluctant to regulate anything in um, in this area. And just very briefly, the sense I got from them is that they want an attestation model against these fifteen principles, or maybe in our terms, we call them control objectives. And then basically that attestation model, you know, they can hold the manufacturers to those attestations as the regulator of record. And for privacy concerns. That they also have to attest to that maybe a different body like the FTC can hold them to uh, those claims under consumer protection remit. So it feels more like less like a regulation and minimum safety requirements for cyber physical systems, and more like um, an attestation model that will be revisited annually. Um, again, I want to reserve judgment. They do. I, I'm happy to see they call out you know the value of um, working collaboratively with third party researchers. Especially important, given that on, in October the Digital and Copyright Act exceptions for automotive research can kick in, so it is no longer a federal crime uh, within the guidelines outlined to do uh, research on your own vehicle or on a vehicle you have per- permission to access. So I, well, think I was to say,
1: which raises in an interesting uh, dichotomy because while the DMCA is recognizing the ability or the need to research your own vehicle, states aren't taking that same approach, at least in their... Right,
4: Michigan law, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean... That one's on our radar. (laughs) And so how are you finding that balance and trying to explain that these aren't really automobiles anymore, they're not pacemakers, they're really computers that are... Either we are jumping inside of or we are putting inside of ourselves.
4: Yeah, the, uh, we focus more on, it, less on being a pointing finger at past failures and more of a helping hand on future success. We don't want to fix, you know, find and fix one bug in one device or one manufacturer. That is important, obviously, but we try to elevate and expand that to what kind of design changes, regulatory changes, incentive changes can lead to making the whole industry safer. It's a little easier relative, and I say that in, you know, in quotes, t- in the automotive industry because there's only about 20 car makers, whereas we've actually had more success in the Food and Drug Administration for connected medical devices where there are you know tens of thousands of medical device innovators, so one at a time isn't going to work. I happen to know most of the cybersecurity talent and most of the car makers now, and we have trust and relationship built. That's just not going to scale. So what's ironic is I was just thinking and talking to my deputy, Bo, but it seems like the FDA more fully internalized the five-star cyber safety framework we wrote for CARS than than NHTSA has yet.
1: Well, where can... can,
4: They're going to have a comment period, so so they're not done yet.
1: Where can listeners find out more information on your efforts that y'all have undertaken? Is there a website they should go to? Yeah.
4: Yeah, so we, our website is imthecavalry.org, C-A-V-A-L-R-Y, the horse is not Calvary where they crucified Jesus of Nazareth, that that typo happens occasionally, uh, and we have right on the front page, there's links to the Five Star Cyber safety Framework for Vehicles, there's links to the Hippocratic Oath for Connected Medical Devices, which is its spiritual uh, companion, and as some of these hot topics lately, like controversial disclosures, like the MedTech, Muddy Waters, St. Jude's pacemaker stuff, you exactly. also have a position, a position on disclosure, which well, the, the first line is the most important. It says those concerned with public safety and human life should take sufficient care to not inadvertently put them at risk. So.
1: Well, thank you. And Josh, we're going to go to our commercial break, but we appreciate yep. your thoughts on these issues and Really hope to have you back once you've had a chance to look, delve into them more, and get into it. But you're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio.
3: 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation, Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, Concours, museums, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport.
5: Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com Any time you like.
3: Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out, and when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF. A non-profit organization is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com.
0: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: And welcome back. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Catch us live each Wednesday from 2 to 3 Eastern. And podcasts available on americaswebradio.com iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and all the rest of the fun. And we've spent the first part of the show today talking with Tom Cross on some of the media buzz surrounding Edward Snowden's case and the Patriot Act of Section 215 Metadata Collection and transitioned gears a little bit to the autonomous vehicles and driverless cars and josh corman shared his initial thoughts from the security and technology standpoint but at the end of the day really uber has already started testing this tesla didn't ask permission they just did it uh to mixed success rates depending on if you've been involved in one of the accidents but other automakers are getting ready to release their versions of this so as a consumer i want to know who gets the ticket what's next where where do we see this going and so we're joined on the show by a risk management and technology attorney based out of the Atlanta office of Morris Manning and Martin. And so, Tony, thank you for joining us today. And I'd say this is definitely right up your sweet spot.
5: Yeah. Hi. Good afternoon, Liz. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and your audience about this exciting and you know, in the news topic for sure.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's the subject of movies Hollywood dreams and you know I'm going to be taking a road trip this weekend with a, including Rob Graham who's been on the show before and his Tesla and I'm just glad it's not my Tesla because I can sit back at least and know that my insurance and I'm not going to be the one getting a, a speeding ticket but really what was the impact of yesterday's I mean, the Department of Transportation released their guidelines, and as Josh noted, they don't really delve into the technology security aspect, but what do they get to with the liability aspect?
4: Well,
5: you know, it may not be surprising, but they don't focus in on the liability. What the new guidelines focus on is kind of providing the skeleton or framework for how self-driving cars should be developed and then ultimately integrated into the united states road system
1: well there's different levels of automation and it breaks those out but can you share for us a little bit where those distinctions lie
5: sure absolutely um the department of transportation adopts the sae international standards and they've developed essentially five levels of automation for self-driving cars um six, really, because they start at level zero, which is where the human driver does everything. And then from there, they start to implement more and more controls into the car, into the software, into the systems, until ultimately when you get to level five, the system is performing all driving tasks under all conditions that a human driver would perform.
1: And from some of the automakers' announced plans, that's the ultimate goal of at least Volvo, correct?
5: Absolutely. I mean, I think level five automation will be every automaker's goal eventually. Level five automation where the car is in complete control is Google's stated goal. Um, It's also something Volvo is looking at. And what that involves is you've seen this with some of the Google designs for their prototype. The car doesn't even have a steering wheel. The car doesn't have pedals because those are designed for human intervention. And the car won't even have that capability. So to level 5 automation, you're looking at a car that is specifically designed not to be driven by a human being.
1: So we're talking Jetsons uh cartoon level technology at that point.
5: <laughs> that's a that's a great analogy. Yeah, it's um one of the fun things is if you look at the designs and you go online and search for Google images of, you know, driverless cars, they redesign the cars where everyone's facing each other <laughs> because the expectation is no one's paying attention to the road.
1: Well, so in, you get to, I'll say some ways that may be true today we're just still technically facing forward. <laughs>
5: Yeah, well, and and that was actually an issue with the accident with the Tesla down in May in Florida, where the driver may not have been paying attention when the Tesla was engaged in autopilot. And you, you mentioned you'd be taking a road trip in a Tesla.
1: Exactly. So, you know, not legal advice and just a conversation amongst the two of us and everyone listening in, but, you know, over a beer, if I were to tell you, okay, we're picking out movies to watch, and the driver may start watching. How much trouble are we going to be in? I mean, consider we're going to be starting off in Georgia and making our way up to Kentucky.
5: I tell you, if, for me to take your eyes off the road right now with the current state of the technology requires a higher degree of trust than I would have. Um, I think the technology can be viewed as, you know, an assistant to driving but is not even intended, and even according to Tesla, is not intended to completely replace the human driver. Tesla recommends you keep your hands on the wheel and pay attention to the road even when the autopilot is engaged.
1: So, Rob Graham, if you're listening in, keep your hands at 10 and 2 at all times this weekend.
5: (laughs) That's right. Eyes straight ahead.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Well, now, does it matter which state we're driving in at this point? Uh,
5: you know, not necessarily, because right now there are only four states that have specific laws related to self-driving cars. And those states are Florida, Michigan, Nevada, and California. So what you operate in, and the way you know things you're starting to see now in the news, the way companies are operating is, generally you have the ability to drive cars on the road if they're safe, and that's a self-certification standard. And that's one thing that came through in the new... Um, guidelines put out by the DOT yesterday, they're asking for voluntary compliance and voluntary reporting by the manufacturers and developers of autonomous vehicles. So you really have the ability right now, because this is such a new area, to kind of be a pioneer. I don't think you face a lot of local, state, or federal regulation while operating your, in this case, semi-autonomous vehicle
1: on the nation's roadways. Is comforting but also disconcerting because if they're not answering to anyone, what's the motivation to making sure you're getting it right? I mean, other than yesterday's uh, video release of the Chinese researchers saying, look, we can do it and we've seen there have been years we've seen some of this research released at Black Hat and some of the other hacking conferences but Other than Charlie and Chris uh, showing their videos of how they hacked the Jeep Cherokee or how they have played around with the Tesla, is there really what's the incentive for companies coming out and getting it right?
5: You know, I think it's the same incentive all manufacturers have. If you step back for a minute from the autonomous vehicle angle and just focus on you know people that are developing new technology and even just bringing established technology products to market, you have the general market forces which dictate people acting with prudence and identifying their own best interests. You know, if Tesla is putting out systems that are hacked, are extremely vulnerable, unreliable, they're going to suffer in the marketplace. But if you're looking for a regulatory angle or some sort of, statutory regulatory legal obligation to have insurance or to have products that can't be hacked or don't have security vulnerabilities. You don't have that right now. There is no sort of overarching authority or safety net around the development of these products, and um, that's really consistent with how the products have been developed in the past. Take the Jeep Cherokee you you mentioned a minute ago about being hacked, and there's no obligation right now for Jeep to develop secure systems in its automobile.
1: Well, and you raise... An interesting point in that I don't know that the government, the regulatory agencies, are going to be able to keep up. That the technology is so ever-evolving that by the time you go through a committee, you get it published, you get it approved, you get it voted on, comments... I don't know that the federal regulatory angle is the most productive. What are your thoughts, having worked in the risk management and technology field?
5: Well, I can tell you that there is no way, and we've seen this in a lot of other areas with emerging technologies, that the federal regulators, state regulators are really going to be able to keep pace. Um, you know, Just look how long it takes to implement things like you know automatic seat belts or the light on the back of your car or anti-lock brakes becoming standard in cars, even those simplified technologies still took, you know, decades before they were mandated and required as part of an automobile. When you start to talk about autonomous vehicles and you look at the sensor packages that are involved, there's no standardization around that. There are no set criteria or anything like that. So I think the idea that the regulators are going to step in and pr- kind of provide the structure for how the industry would be organized really is, just isn't going to happen. There's no way for them to move that quickly.
1: So if it's not the regulators, the joke is always, well, it's going to be the insurers and the lawyers uh, who drive change or standards from an insurance standpoint, and a risk management standpoint. How do you see the big insurers being able to keep up if they can't, if the lawmakers can't?
5: Well, and the insurers, you know, when we talk about the insurance market, we're looking at a couple different areas with autonomous vehicles. The most obvious is the automobile insurers. Automobile insurance in the United States is about a $200 billion a year industry.
1: And uh, mandated, insurance. depending on which state you're in.
5: I believe every state you know, has an insurance mandate, at least for minimum coverage, if you're going to drive a car and to own a car. Um, you know, It's a condition to obtaining a registration, a title and tag. So you know that would continue, and then you have to get into, and maybe this is a good segue into, you well, know, what's the liability? So what happens? You mentioned at the top of the segment about you know parking tickets, speeding tickets. Um, back in February, Google received a, call it kind of a private letter ruling, from the Department of Transportation, the NHTSA, and clarified that a driver of the vehicle could be the software or the system. So even though you have a human behind the wheel, for purposes of federal law, the driver could be the machine, essentially.
1: Well, and we're going to delve into that a little bit more because it raises a whole slew of questions, but we're going to jump to a commercial break. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio.
3: On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com.
4: Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's web radio.
3: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
0: This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
1: And welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. We're talking with a technology and risk management uh, attorney from the law firm of Morris, Manning & Martin. Tony, we were talking really before the break about what, who gets the ticket and the private letter ruling that said, okay, Google the software. But my question is, well, who is the software is it uh, microsoft is it google is it the tiny little company based out of atlanta georgia that contributed software that was acquired and integrated into the system so that seems like it could be an easy answer but how how did they deal with that aspect
5: well, you know, they haven't had to deal with this specifically yet, but the law generally would apply liability to the kind of last-in-line manufacturer of a product. So right now, it's, you know I think many you and your listeners are all aware, there's no real single manufacturer for any product. Every product is made of components that are provided by sub-manufacturers and other producers. And it would be the same thing with a self-driving car. You'd have the key components being the sensors. Um, also then you'll have the software that's going to be the you know the brains and the engine of the whole whole autonomous vehicle and what you would expect to happen is liability would first be assigned to the manufacturer of the automobile and then from there once the ultimate liability would be determined in the event of an injury uh, then the manufacturer would basically go after the component manufacturers so and that's typically how you have things right now working for example if you buy a you know, LG refrigerator, and it catches fire, and you know. Causes or a Samsung
1: Note Seven, uh, <laughs> yeah, my <that's> battery. <laughs> yeah, melts. if you take a
5: Note Seven on an, on your private jet, um, but yeah, if, you know, for example, you would go after Samsung in that example as the manufacturer but samsung then may pursue a claim against the battery battery manufacturer
1: well, let's say and this and that was a bad example on my part because they built the battery but they didn't they may have outsourced the software that was integrating its use so it, it still applies but uh, they're still going to lose a lot of market share <laughs> over uh, this little fiasco but now If I am a police officer and I arrive on the scene of a fender bender and the passengers in the back of the Uber are saying, we're just passengers in a semi-autonomous driverless car, the Uber operator, are they the ones? Because right now Uber has someone sitting in the driver's seat, but they're not supposed to be touching the controls. Is that who receives the ticket if the car was at fault is it uber because they are operating the car or does the officer give a ticket to everybody and let the judge figure out how to assess blame at this point
5: yeah you know based on many of the police officers i know i think everyone gets a ticket and they'll sort it out later but from a practical standpoint you first have to evaluate and Take the hypothetical a little bit to a more detailed level, and like, okay, you know, what's the ticket for? Um, if it, it shouldn't be for speeding, right? Because the cars will be programmed not to exceed the set speed limit.
1: And there's no override, is there? Hmm.
5: There shouldn't be. No, uh, you know, if it's over. But I want to go limit, faster. It, yes, that's right. I yeah.
1: overslept. <laughs>
5: That, that's one of the issues with people with, you know, and how initially people are going to react to self-driving cars because I can tell you driving around Atlanta, it would be a shock to see cars obeying the speed limit. Hey, and, and you
1: would get run over time. by the other drivers.
5: <laughs> Absolutely. So Uber, for example, is starting to evaluate whether they can set their car to exceed the speed limit to keep up with, you know, general traffic. So that's a consideration that's going into this. But, you know, assuming that the cars are following their program and exceed the speed limit and get a ticket, then, yeah, I mean, the, the car itself would be at fault. So it would seem, you know, inappropriate to give the owner of the car, if it's the person behind the wheel but not driving, a ticket because they didn't make the decision to break the law. It was done automatically on, you know, a situation where they had no control. So they have no culpability.
1: So really what you're saying is uh, Rob needs to keep his hands at 10 and 2 uh, this weekend. And from the backseat of the car, I'm probably not getting the ticket, but Rob should also be very cautious when he's driving or operating because Tesla is not ready to take over the liability just yet.
5: That's absolutely right, and I think he'd probably have a hard time convincing the officer that he wasn't the one putting the pedal to the floor to go go 90 miles an hour up to Kentucky. You know, there's also the element, and this is one of the requirements in the DOT guidelines, is about, you know, what to, what to do for tracking and keeping uh, data on how the car was operating so that ultimately, you know, if the car was speeding, you know, can you look at the car's data and say, oh, no, the owner-operator there was in charge of the car, versus the autopilot
1: well that's that's raising the whole issue kind of circling back a full you know full speed to when we were talking with tom cross earlier and how the governments addressed their data collection programs and so uh but tony i want to thank you for joining us and sharing and we're going to But a to be continued and hopefully you'll come back with us once the dust has settled a little bit and both you and Josh Corman and give us an update on where this is because not only is it a week by week, but it's almost a day by day development in this area. But thank you. And I encourage everyone find Tony and his practice on Morris Manning and Martin's Website, but thank you again for joining us today.
5: Thank you for having me. Have a great day.
1: Oh, you too. Well, and so, Tom, we're going to put you, Tom Cross is on the hot seat earlier wearing his government hat and his tinfoil hat discussing what's going on with Edward Snowden. So, in the last few minutes of the show, uh, Tom, I've heard something about a the U.S. is turning over control of the internet that. Uh, all hell is going to break loose. Uh, dogs and cats are going to start playing together pandemonium. nicely. A pandemonium. So, is it the Stay Puft Marshall- Marshmallow Man that we need to fear?
2: <laughs> well, uh, it, it may be a problem, but it's more subtle than that. I think. Um, the, so, um, let's explain what this is. So, there's um, uh, so the, a lot of people understand the internet. You know, sort of grew out of uh US government programs and uh historically so there's this thing called the DNS or the domain name system it's a part of the internet that translates names for websites into numbers or addresses so when you visit americaswebradio.com that name is translated done. Into nicely done a number <laughs> and your computer uses that number to reach the website and and get the uh get the, the radio show. So um, uh, um, we have to have that, n- that name-to-number translation system, and there's a whole lot of interests all over the world that are, that are of course, concerned about the operation of that uh, naming system. And traditionally, that naming system has operated under a contract from the U.S. Department of Commerce. And so, what is happening next month um, is that uh, that um, entity that manages that name system will transition from operating under a contract from the Department of Commerce to being an independent entity that is essentially uh, a functioning based on the governance of its various stakeholder groups, of which the United States is a, a stakeholder, but one of many others.
1: I'll say so. They're going so from being. Under the sole voice of the U.S. Well, well, let me
2: let me correct what you (laughs) just said. So, (laughs) uh, because the the voice thing is really important, like they they already have this multi-stakeholder governance process. So the U.S. government has a contract that they operate under, um, but that. That influence is, like, um, I would argue mostly symbolic. Like, they don't actually do anything with that influence. It's just there. Um, So the actual process through which decisions are made is this multi-stakeholder process, which the U.S. participates in and other people participate in, too.
1: So really it sounds like the name on the lease is changing. Yeah. uh, And it – we may be – they're purchasing – Instead of leasing the vehicle now or re- bringing it back, so I'm not.
2: Yeah, that's it. that's that's a decent analogy, right? And so there's this idea that that were there to be, the U.S. has never influ- used its influence here to do anything. And you know, were there to be some sort of huge controversy over internet censorship in the future, maybe you know, you might imagine the U.S. using its influence here to do something. And so, I think that's the concern that the U.S. will lose that power. Um, but the the thing is that so the counter argument I'm putting on my tinfoil hat. Okay, uh, the counter argument is that is that if were the U.S. to do that, what would happen is that the domain name system would fragment. So it's a it's a great thing that the internet is this one place where everyone in the world uh, can can communicate and we all kind of have a shared internet, then we all have the same internet. So everyone in the world that puts in America's web radio gets the same website. Um and if some country decided they had it with that and they wanted their own thing, they could very easily start their own thing. And so the the gingerness of this whole policy process is convincing all these governments with their different ways of functioning in their different cultures to accept that we have one internet and there's one answer for these questions um and uh um you know so of course if there if there was a huge dispute and the u.s decided to do something some other country might decide well you know i'm gonna set up my own thing and i'm forget you guys and so um, so if there were
1: dissidents in a in a country that country could step in and but well, that's so, not to say they can't do that through other means. Yeah, they already. do it already.
2: I mean, like in China, there's the Great Firewall of China, and if you're in China, there's all kinds of websites around the world that you can't see. Um, and so there, and I, I think that I, I don't like it when anyone censors the internet. But if they're going to censor the internet, I don't. I wish they would not use the DNS system for doing that because, uh, you know, that's that's the wrong. Do you way. strenuously There's really a really right way, <laughs> but that's the really the the wrong way. And so I would hope that. Insofar as the U.S. had some sort of authority here that they would never need to use it.
1: So, well, thanks, Todd. It clarifies a little bit, but it sounds like this is another one of those let's stick a pin in it and revisit. So, hopefully, once the transition occurs, if it occurs, because there are efforts to delay that, that you'll be willing to come back and talk with us because we also need to pick back up to what's going on with Mr. Snowden and all these and the cases he has. Rot. But thank you to Tom. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Tony, uh, for joining the show today. And up next will be a series looking at elections and campaigns from a technology perspective. So join us on the upcoming Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz shows. Thank you to Hall Booth-Smith. I'm your host at Lawyer Liz. Tune in next week on America's Web Radio.